Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Bonnie Zucker, a clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, California. She received a PhD in clinical psychology at UCLA, where she developed a specialty in the research, prevention, and treatment of anxiety disorders. Since graduate school, she worked as the Director of Behavior Therapy Programs at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. She then returned to UCLA, where she worked for eight and a half years and was a staff psychologist and assistant training director at UCLA Counseling and Psychological Services. After UCLA, she conducted research and wrote educational materials about mental health at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Currently, Dr. Zucker has a private practice in Los Angeles and trains other mental health clinicians in anxiety disorder treatment and prevention. She also writes articles on mental health for Psychology Today and for other outlets. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Erin. I'm so glad to be here. I'm super excited to have you. And we're talking about a really important topic today about panic disorder and panic attacks and health-related anxieties. And obviously, these are really important clinical issues right now, especially with the pandemic that we've been experiencing. I've seen a huge increase in anxiety and health anxiety, particular since this has started. So really happy to have you here to talk about some of these things today. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to be here. Before we get started, let's just start out with hearing a little bit about you as a person and a professional Mm -hmm. and how you became a psychologist and you particularly your interest in anxiety. Yeah. So I've always been interested in psychology, um, just like as a, even as a kid, like I was, would read the Ann Landers column and the advice column in the, the newspaper. And I just was always really, really interested in psychology. But um, when I was applying to college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and I'm also interested in communications and writing and so forth. So I ended up being a communications major. And when I graduated from undergrad, I worked in advertising for about a year and I was totally miserable. Mm. So completely unhappy, did not like what I was doing, did not like that career trajectory at all. So I did a lot of soul searching and was thinking, what do I want to do with my life? So I decided that I wanted to get a little bit of research experience in psychology and see if that was something that I might be interested in. So I ended up just opening up a phone book and that was back in the day when we actually like had phone books and right. had the yellow pages. And I found this center for stress and anxiety disorders, which was at SUNY Albany. So I begged them to let me volunteer there for the summer. And it actually turned out that the director of that center was one of the pioneers in the development of cognitive behavior therapy for panic disorder. And then from there, I ended up getting a job at Massachusetts General Hospital in their anxiety disorders research program. So I was there for a little over two years, also doing research in anxiety. And then when um, I went to graduate school at UCLA, my mentor was, has expertise in anxiety disorders. And that's 
where I did all my research in grad school was on anxiety disorders. That's sort of like how I got there. And what I really liked about working in anxiety is that it's just people would get better, which was great. It's so ubiquitous, you know, so many people struggle with anxiety in so many different ways. So that's sort of how, how I got there. And while I was at UCLA, my advisor was doing a lot of research on the treatment of panic disorder. So a lot of cognitive behavior therapy, treatment studies of panic. So I learned a lot about that while I was there. And um, I also started to get interested in prevention of anxiety disorders. So another graduate student when I was there, she was doing research on a panic disorder prevention study for her dissertation. So I worked as a therapist on that. And then for my own dissertation, I did a prevention study for people at risk for developing obsessive compulsive disorder. So I started to get interested Mm. in um, prevention of anxiety disorders as well while I was in graduate school. OCD is another thing that I've been seeing a big increase of in the past couple of years. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have a ton of experience uh, studying and researching and then developing treatments for anxiety disorders. Let's start by talking a little bit about panic disorder and panic attacks, because I know panic attacks can be a component of a lot of uh, anxiety disorder phenomenon and panic attacks kind of suck, don't they? Yes. Yes. They can be very scary, but you know, it's interesting. A panic attack is really just an activation of this fight or flight system that we have. Evolution has sort of programmed us to have, to have the ability to have this response in order to protect ourselves. So if you think about it, like back in like cave times, the cave person needed to have this fight or flight response. If there was like a bear running at at them, they needed to like have some sort of like activation in order to either fight the situation or, or run away. We still need to have this type of reaction. So if you were like walking across a busy street and all of a sudden a car came speeding towards you, you would need to have that type of activation in order to get out of the way and protect yourself. The problem with a panic attack is, is that type of response is triggered in a situation that doesn't warrant it. Yeah, so if you're already feeling stressed, you might all of a sudden develop all of these symptoms of a panic attack and not know why that's happening. So it might feel like it's coming from out of the blue. When that happens and you have this huge like anxiety reaction where you might have all sorts of symptoms such as like a racing heart, shortness of breath, feeling really hot, tingling in your extremities, you start to wonder like, why is this happening? If there's like a re- an outward reason for it, you don't really think twice, but if it seems like it's coming from out of the blue and it, it's like you're sitting at home watching a movie or you're out to dinner or, or whatnot, or you're on the freeway, you start to wonder like, what is wrong? And instead of th- seeing an a- external cause, you start to look internal. So you think, oh my gosh, what is wrong with my body that I am having this panic attack? And that's when it starts to become a problem. When people start to attribute a panic attack to 
oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack? Mm. Am I going crazy? Am I going to faint? You know, so when you start to misinterpret the panic attack as meaning something that it's not, then that becomes very scary. And that might set you up to be on alert looking for future panic attacks. What's the difference between just feeling anxious and having a panic attack? Like, how would you define a panic attack? I mean, a panic attack is defined as having like a real sudden onset of anxiety symptoms that usually reaches a peak within like 10 minutes or so. So it's like a real sudden rush of symptoms. You know, like I mentioned, it could be a racing heart. It could be difficulties breathing. It could be, you know, feeling hot or or chills or stomach upset is common, but it's like, it really just comes on all at once Mm. as opposed to like being in just more of like a perpetual anxious state where it's more consistent. You might just feel sort of edgy on alert, unable to relax, but it's more consistent as opposed to this sudden rush and sudden, sudden onset of symptoms. And you mentioned, and I've certainly experienced this before with some of my patients that sometimes people feel like, oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack or a stroke? Yes. Am I going crazy? Yes. Am I going to a perpetual state of this panic that's never going to end? Are any of those things ever true for anybody? You know, it's, it, I think it's always helpful to have a medical evaluation and that can rule out people's Mm. fears. So, you know, for example, if someone is afraid, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel like I'm having a heart attack. You know, it's, it is good to like, just talk to your general practitioner and just get that ruled out. And that I think is, is important, but no, I mean, a panic attack, first of all, it cannot last forever. It, It can't, it's like physically impossible, like in terms of, um, Right. There's an exhaustion that takes place and basically you poop out before it can go on forever. Right. Right. Your parasympathetic nervous system kind of shuts, shuts that all down. So that doesn't happen. The thing that's scary is it can feel like a heart attack, but it's again, it's, it's not, you're not having a heart attack. And that's why having a medical evaluation, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Not the same thing as like, you know, quote, like going crazy, you know, often people, feel like they don't have control over their mind or their body, but you actually do. Interestingly, it's somewhat common to have your first panic attack while using marijuana. That's pretty common. For those people, generally, the main symptom is sort of this sense of unreality Mm -hmm. and this sort of feeling like they're going crazy. So that's specific to that, you know, when people have panic attacks in that situation. The other type of fear that people often have is a fear of fainting. I've worked with people who have fainted. They actually did faint. Yeah. Then afterwards, they develop this fear of fainting that manifests as a panic attack as opposed to actually fainting. Bonnie, is the fear of fainting just the fear that they're going to faint and hurt themselves or not wake up? Or is it more the embarrassment of doing that in front of other people? That's a really good question. I think it depends. I think both cases are true, Uh you know, so a fear of fainting and just, you know, what that means, or am I going to hit my head or, you know, whatever, or yeah, I think the embarrassment is like a really huge fear for people who have this fear of fainting. 
I know that in a lot of cases, people are feeling anxious and may have a panic attack around a lot of other people in crowds or an airplane yeah, yeah. or something like that. And so yeah. it can often feel like all eyes are on me while I'm having yes. a panic attack. Yes. Yes. And the thing that's so interesting is that people can't see how you feel inside. Yeah. And while you might appear to look a little uncomfortable or anxious, like they're not seeing what's going through you. So, um, right, right. so you know, you feel much worse, but let me just go back to the one, the fainting um, issue. Cause this is important when you have a panic attack, it's just physiologically very different from fainting. And what your panic attack is really just like revving up your body to actually engage in this like fight or flight flight response. Um, whereas fainting it's, it's the complete opposite where your body's sort of shutting down. So it's just very, very unusual that someone would actually faint as a result of having a panic attack. So let's talk a little bit about some ways that you try to help people who have panic disorder and uh, anxiety symptoms and panic attacks. Maybe we can just talk briefly about some of the common steps that you take to help people deal with panic attacks. And then we'll move on to some of the health anxiety stuff as well. But how do you work with people who have panic attacks or afraid of having panic attacks and sort of deal with managing them when they come up? So someone can have panic attacks and just like every so often they'll have a panic attack and they don't really necessarily worry about it. Or it might, you know, like I had a panic attack during a statistics exam in, in graduate school when I had, there were three questions on there and I realized <laughs> I couldn't answer any of them. I think um, I must've had one in a statistics class too, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I had a panic attack. I didn't, you know, I knew why I wasn't worried about having another one. I was more worried about failing that exam. Yeah. So panic attacks can just sort of come up here and there for people and it's not really a problem or they're just under a lot of stress and they're not particularly worried about developing and having another panic attack. But then there are those people, you know, they have a panic attack. They're very frightened of them. They start to worry about having a panic attack. They start to make behavioral changes associated with it. So they might start to avoid situations that they associate with panic attacks. So for example, it's very more common than most people would realize for people to have panic attacks, like while driving, especially on like the freeway. And then people start to avoid driving because they're afraid of having a panic attack while driving. So when it goes from a panic attack to panic disorder is when, you know, you start to like have a lot of distress and interference associated with this, where you start to really worry about having future panic attacks, where you, you know, potentially make a lot of behavioral changes as a result of panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that people who have more frequent panic attacks and or panic disorder have what's called increased anxiety sensitivity. So what anxiety sensitivity is, is a fear of symptoms of anxiety. So if your heart starts to beat fast, that you're worried about your heart beating fast, or someone might be very aware of their changes in their breathing. And so what happens is, so people who develop panic disorder tend to be like really monitoring their body and check that, you know, like they take their pulse a lot, or they might mm -hmm. um, just be really hyper aware of what's going on in their body. And they then might misinterpret minor changes in their body 
as, you know, oh my God, I'm going to have a, a heart attack slash panic attack, you know, mm-hmm. or they're, or that it might even be happening without their even realizing it, that they're processing changes in their body and that will trigger a panic attack. Traditional um, cognitive behavior therapy for panic disorder, you really want to start to dismantle all of these things that are reinforcing the panic attacks and reinforcing the notion that these panic attacks are dangerous. So you look at like what scary thoughts, you know, that they're having during their panic attacks, like I'm afraid I'm going to die. And then you work with them and you see they've had like a hundred panic attacks. And mm-hmm. How many times have you actually died during one of these? You know, so you start to like work on these, these fears or, you know, if someone has this fear, like you brought up of fainting and they're afraid of embarrassing themselves, you help them like decatastrophize, like, okay, what would happen if you were to faint mm-hmm. you know, I remember my advisor talking about someone, either she had treated or someone else had treated who had a fear of fainting and they had them just like, they were in a crowd, I think in a mall or something, and they just pretended to faint just to see what happened, <laughs> you know, and, and people were just like very nice and helpful, you know, just to yeah. like start to take the fear out of it. So that's like one component is dealing with the thoughts. The other parts are like looking at this sort of fear of their body sensation. So again, people with panic disorder tend to be afraid of their own body. They're afraid of what's going on in their body. And so in a traditional panic disorder treatment, you basically bring on this in a very structured way, you bring on the sensations that they're afraid of. So if someone fears shortness of breath sensations, you would might have them practice breathing through a little straw while Mm -hmm. holding their nose, just to start to recreate that symptom. The idea is like the more you practice bringing on these symptoms that when they come on naturalistically, you're no longer afraid of them. Mm-hmm. It's called the interoceptive exposure. I've had some patients who they are really sensitive to their heart beating fast. Yes, yes. So I've had them do sort of heavy exercise yes. to get their heart beating fast. And of course the heart didn't explode and exactly. they were okay. Right. So that would be an example of that. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, or someone who a dizziness is another sensation that people experience. Mm -hmm. So have them practice spinning around slowly in a circle. And so you're doing it first in like the, like the therapist's office, and then they will go home and do it as homework. And they, you just kind of keep practicing until their anxiety comes down. So again, you're sort of teaching, you're teaching them through experience that you don't need to fear these sensations. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other really big component is looking at avoidance. You know, if someone is avoiding driving, for example, like with, with the freeway. So that was just, again, I live in Los Angeles, like such a common, Yeah, you've you've got the beast, right? Yes. Yeah. So you would, um, you know, have them practice going one exit on such and such a freeway, not during rush hour and just sort of practicing that going on and off that one exit um, over and over again. And then you might go to two exits or you might Mm -hmm. have them, you know, move into the middle lane, you know, just like really trying to have them practice. So they start to like overcome the avoidance. 
sometimes people who have panic attacks avoid things like caffeine. Again, they're sensitive to the, um, their heart beating quicker. So what you might have them do is drink some coffee, you know, and just, again, as part of this retraining them that you do not need to fear these types of things. So the avoidance, I think, is really critical because the more one avoids, the more anxious they feel about that particular environment or stimuli, right? You're basically reinforcing the avoidance by avoiding and feeling some relief from the anxiety by not doing it. So there's a reinforcement in the avoiding, which makes the actual approaching more difficult. And I have a question for you. Like, I'm not quite sure where professionals stand on this. And I have a lot of patients often ask me whether the better approach is sort of like a a flooding type of approach Mm -hmm. or more of a hierarchical approach toward dealing with feared stimuli. In other words, a flooding would be just Mm -hmm. jump into the thing that makes you feel the most anxious and put yourself in that situation until you extinguish it. Or do you approach it very gradually and just take steps in a hierarchy to make it more and more difficult as you master each step? How do you manage that? Or how do you make a decision about how to do that? I don't off the top of my head know the research on flooding versus like systematic desensitization, but I would be more inclined to do it in steps. Yeah, I think it's important for people to feel a sense of mastery over being able to do something. So like going back to the freeway driving, like there's this one highway inter- freeway interchange that people would talk about all the time. It was where the 405 and the 101 met. Mm-hmm. So to put someone immediately like go there, you know, when you haven't really started to build up their confidence in being able to drive on the freeway in the first place. I think it can be a little counterproductive in Mm -hmm. this case. So yeah, I would be more inclined to just to build this up a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I've always taken the systematic desensitization approach just because the flooding seems a little cruel. Yeah. Sometimes you have people who just want to jump the line and and get to the end result as quickly as possible. So I struggle with that one sometimes, but it sounds like you, you tend to take the more systematic approach and that makes sense too. just, you know, for, especially for something like driving, where I I guess there is a real potential of having an accident, you know, that is something that could actually happen as opposed to having a heart attack or something from a panic attack that, you know, one would want to gain their confidence and build momentum. Yeah. Yeah. And let me say though, about the panic and the accident, like people think, oh my gosh, like, you know, I had a a panic attack on the freeway. I like could have killed someone and it feels very scary, obviously a very high stakes situation, but people who get panic attacks while driving tend to be extremely safe drivers. Hmm. They're so scared of like (laughs) anything bad happening that they're like so hyper aware, they're not talking on their cell phones, you know, they're not texting anyone, they're like probably the safest drivers out there, Mm -hmm. they're not distracted, they're so focused on what they're doing. Yeah, so so they don't sort of have a panic attack and then run amok and swerve into oncoming traffic or (laughs) nothing like that. I mean, that's the thing. It's like people, when they have a panic attack, they feel completely out of control. But the reality of the situation is they tend to be extremely in control of their behaviors. And like, just going back to that evolutionary perspective of panic, that fight or flight response 
you're not doing anything crazy in that moment. You're, you're doing something to protect yourself. And so that same instinct happens when you have a panic attack in another type of situation that doesn't warrant it. Right. So again, if, if you see someone who's coming in with a panic attack, you already kind of know what's going on before they come into your office. So you know that they probably misinterpreted what was going on with their body to mean that there was something wrong with them. And that was basically, you know, they're having this sort of like anxiety response that they've misinterpreted. Someone would come in, they just had a panic attack. They just went to the health center or the ER. They thought they were having a heart attack. And so what I would do is, is also, I would look for like, why did this person seem particularly at risk for thinking that they were having a heart attack or for thinking that they were going to faint or, or whatnot. And it turned out there was often a reason. So people would often say like, yeah, my uncle just died of a heart attack, or I actually fainted two weeks ago and I'm worried about fainting again, mm. whatever they were afraid of, there is often sort of a reason why they felt vulnerable to that particular thing. Not always, but, mm-hmm. but often. So I would just like kind of give them a brief spiel on panic attacks, that they're not dangerous, you're not going to faint or whatever the issue was. And so I did like a real, like sort of brief psychoeducation based on like whatever their concern was. And then when we would do a longer panic protocols, we would do a lot of like challenging of whatever their faulty beliefs were. So if they thought they were having, like I was saying, if they had a heart attack, you'd teach them like how to challenge it and so forth. But since I only would have like 45 minutes with these students, I might say, you've been worked up, you're 20 years old, you are not having a heart attack. You do not have to worry about that just really like lasering in on what their fear was, or just with the, you're not going to faint when this is happening. You know, this is the opposite of fainting and so forth. And then I would just also briefly assess their level of anxiety sensitivity. So how much are, you know, are you paying attention to your body? Have you been like taking your pulse a lot lately? Are you just sort of monitoring your body and so forth? Often the answer was yes. And I would talk about how monitoring your body, it just reinforces the notion that something's wrong with you. It's like, you know, if you're taking your pulse, you're almost saying to yourself, oh no, I have to take my pulse to keep myself safe. Right. So it's like really feeding into that fear structure. So I would just explain that to them and just say, you know, when you notice that you're monitoring your body. At that moment, just, you know, tell yourself, okay, I'm monitoring my body. I don't really need to. In fact, it's just sort of reinforcing my anxiety. I'm just going to look at something external to me. So if I'm outside, look at a tree, just look at, you know, something in the room, the painting on the wall, just to get yourself outside of that body monitoring. That's like the distraction process. Yeah. It's just like, it's like a mindful distraction. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I tell people to have sort of like a, you're not saying like, do not monitor my body, you know, like, don't make it like a scary thing, but Mm -hmm. just say, you know, I'm not, I'm monitoring it. I could continue, but it's not the best way to handle this. That piece replaced the, you know, what we were talking about, like um, the interoceptive exposures where we were having people like run in place and breathe through a straw 
you know, when you don't have like a real entrenched panic disorder, sometimes just this instruction of being mindful of when you're monitoring your body and redirecting your attention, that can often be enough. You don't necessarily have to go through all of the interoceptive exposure when it's a more mild case, you know, and then a lot of these students at this point weren't really engaging in a lot of avoidance because it was like their first or second panic attack. But I just instructed them like, you know, just, you don't want to start to avoid things because that again, reinforces all your fears. So just to avoid avoidance, basically. Yeah. So it's just like a really brief intervention that, that really is quite powerful. And I still use it today. And, you know, my private practice, when people talk about having panic attacks, obviously, if someone has like, again, like a more severe form of panic disorder, where they're maybe having like frequent panic attacks, a lot of avoidance, I might have do a more extensive protocol. We might want to also do those interoceptive exposures. One thing I hear you saying that I think is really important, and especially if there are younger people listening to this podcast, that it's very helpful and important to get in and get some help early on, because if you can address some of these issues around anxiety or other kinds of symptoms that one might be experiencing early, it helps it not sort of fester and grow and turn into something even bigger. So addressing it and getting some help can be very helpful early, especially for, like you said, college students are often at the edge where they're experiencing some of these things for the first time. They're in college, they're away from home. They're having a lot of different kinds of pressures and experiences. And so making sure to not avoid or ignore these things when they come up and seek out some help to try to better understand it could be very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, with the pandemic that had, has carried like so much stress and anxiety and so much uncertainty. And so people might be, have had um, panic attacks surface during this time of any age, you know? So, you know, hopefully some of this stuff that I've been talking about today can be, is relevant also just to know what a panic attack is. And again, if you're worried about some sort of health issue to talk to your doctor. But once you've been medically cleared, if like what I've been talking about seems to be relevant to maybe implement some of these, these um, techniques. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about health anxiety. Now we've touched upon it a fair amount in terms of people being very aware and focused on what sensations they're having inside of their body. And that that can lead to kind of the over monitoring and increase the panic and the panic attacks. Can you say a little bit more about what other ways health anxiety manifests in people uh, beyond just the self-monitoring of symptoms? With health anxiety, there's a lot of overlap with panic, although it's a little bit different. And also people with health anxiety can have panic attacks and people with panic attacks can have health anxiety. So there's, there could be a lot of overlap. Panic attack or panic disorder. It's just, when you have these panic attacks, it's like this really acute, sudden rush of symptoms that then abates. But with health anxiety, you might not have a panic attack. So you might just have persistent or intermittent, like worry about your health. I hear this with a lot of single people who are worried they have herpes or someone might be worried that they have cancer, or you might be worried that 
Um, you might also be worried you're going to have a heart attack or, or something like that. So it's just worry about just something going on in your body. Again, like it, you could also have panic attacks too. You might not, but you know, like more of like a persistent health anxiety might just be like, oh, I'm just, I'm worried that I have X. Health so up. it'd be like, I've been noticing I've been having a lot of headaches. Right. I think I might have a brain tumor. Exactly. And yeah. then just yeah. focused on worrying about that. Yeah. I mean, anything under the sun. The problem nowadays is that we have access to the internet, which can basically give you any diagnosis under the sun. I'm sure if you Google what, you know, what are headaches a sign of, and I'm sure like brain tumor, I don't, you know, I'm sure like there'll be 50 things that can come, that come right. up about a headache. Any symptom, especially with the internet can be a sign of some horrible illness and can like totally freak you out. You know, it is so common for people with health anxiety to overdiagnose with the internet that they um, now have a term for it. It's called cyberchondria. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard I haven't, that. No, I have not, but yes. I, yeah. I they started it. doing research <laughs> on cyberchondria. So you, you Google causes of headaches and there's yeah. 20 causes that they list. Number 20 is brain tumor. Right. And that's what people are focused on when they yeah. read that. Or whatever their fear is, you know, yeah. or, I mean, and, and then the other thing that people with health anxiety tend to do, it, they, so they're looking for reassurance, they're reassurance seekers. So they, you know, they're trying to get reassurance from the internet that doesn't often makes things worse. Or they might ask like a loved one, oh, do you think I have such and such a problem? No, you're fine. Don't worry about it you know, is maybe the response that they'll get. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem with this reassurance seeking either with another person or with the internet is it's like, when you get reassurance, like if someone gives you reassurance, it does, it might help your anxiety temporarily, but you haven't learned to effectively manage it on your own. And so then what happens is the next time you feel anxious about having whatever problem, your anxiety spikes again, you go ask someone for reassurance and then it comes down, but like, you're now caught in this cycle of, of anxiety and reassurance seeking. You're just like, you're caught in, in this cycle and you haven't been able to just learn to tolerate, okay, I'm having a headache. It's probably nothing. I'm just going to like move on with my day or do whatever, you know, do what I need to do and not completely freak out about it. So people who have health anxiety, do they typically jump from one concern symptom to another within their body? I think there's some people who sort of perseverate on a specific symptom. I've had some clients who are not in relationships and they've worried, oh, do I have herpes? You know, and then like worried, like no one, I'll never... I'm not going to be lovable because I have this and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but then once they get into a relationship, then maybe that symptom might abate, you know, they might not mm -hmm. have that symptom anymore. I mean, there are people who just do tend to like worry about a lot of different things. So it could sort of jump around from one issue to another, um, or someone might feel like, um, you know, maybe cancer um, runs in their family and maybe they're, you know, really, really worried about that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, you know, with, with health anxiety, you could have herpes or you could have 
develop cancer, you, you, someone could have a heart attack. Like, it's not like these are problems that are out of the question. It's just, do you want your life to revolve around the fear? Yeah. So how explain how that might look then in a healthy way of managing it. So we don't want to completely like poo poo and ignore Mm -hmm. any possible health related problem. That's why we have doctors and we get checkups and all of that. But at the same time, we don't want to be obsessed with possible health problems that we're inventing within ourselves that are most likely most of the time related to something that's not life-threatening. So how do you find that balance for people? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is important for people, like, like I said, with the people with panic attacks, like it is important to go to the doctor, have regular checkups. And if you are someone that is you know, does have a lot of health anxiety, you know, ask your doctor about it and just say like, and just be frank about it. Like, you know, I have a lot of health anxiety. I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. When should I be really concerned? So just like have the doctor educate you. I think that's Mm -hmm. important. But once you've gotten sort of the clean bill of health, you have to start to think about okay, what am I doing to reinforce the anxiety? Like, again, am I going on the internet and Googling symptoms? Am I asking for too much reassurance? Am I checking my body? Like, am I like even physically checking my body for like any like imperfection? I'm afraid I have skin cancer or something, you know? So look at like all of these behaviors that you're doing to reinforce the anxiety and just start to resist doing them. I think that's important. So like, let's just say somebody notices some bump or rash on their skin. It's a little itchy. It's not that bad, but then the person begins to really focus on it and become very anxious about the rash. I'm imagining maybe a reasonable thing to do would be well, let me go get this checked out. I'll make a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. Doctor's available. Dermatologist is available in a couple of weeks. Okay. It's the first appointment I can get. Mm -hmm. Let me just go for that. Make an appointment, go check it out. In the meanwhile, keep my eye on it. If it gets a lot worse, then maybe I need to go in sooner. Right. It stays about the same. Then maybe just not spend so much time worrying about it. Definitely not jump to the conclusion that it's a skin cancer that's going to kill me in the next two weeks before I go to the dermatologist and actually have him take or her take a look at it. Right. I I mean, would that would be, that be sort of an example of like a healthy, reasonable way to get a a bodily thing going on. I think with what you described, definitely. And just to just, I guess, distract yourself in a way that you're not like paying so much attention on it. I mean, this is the other thing that's, that's interesting. Like, the more you're worried about a symptom. So let's say you get a headache and if you're worried that you have a brain tumor and you start to like, really like focus in on it, think about the headache. It's interesting, but it tends to like amplify the the sensation, you know, it makes it worse. Oh yeah. I mean, I just remember, I have this memory of being in, I think like second grade and um, being in elementary school and lined up at the nurse's office because there was like some lice outbreak. 
And I just remember waiting to get checked for lice and everyone's like itching and like, yeah. you know, like you're scratching right. your head and, you know, I never actually ended up having it, but you feel like you, you do, right? Right. You imagine those lice kind of crawling around on your scalp. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, when I was a practicum student, when I, while I was in graduate school, I was doing an inpatient rotation and a patient hit me on the side of my head really hard and knocked oh me gosh. out. That was horrible. Oh my gosh. That's and then after that, I had tinnitus in my ear. Right. Um, right. And it's never gone away. I've had it ever since then. So oh you know, we're, we're talking like 30 years or so, but most of the time I don't notice it. It's just in the background. I don't notice it at all, but right now we're talking about it. I can hear it really loudly. Yes. So I think what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense that even if you have some kind of, and the situation with the lice, you didn't have the lice, so you were imagining something that wasn't actually there, but even for things that are there, you tend to notice them more if you're focusing on in on them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And especially with the ear ringing, that's like a really good example because, and I've worked with people on this. It's like, again, like the more you focus on it, the more you're going to hear it versus just moving on with your life, it still might be there, but it's going to bother you less, you know, similarly, like with chronic pain, if you're really focusing in a lot on the pain and, you know, like thinking about, you know, just how it feels and how it's limiting you and what your life was like before, it's just, it's just going to keep you stuck in it as opposed to, doing other things, you know, just there's a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, which really sure. talks about living in accordance to your values. You know, you can, there's still things you can do, you know, and even though you have ringing in your ears, you can do a lot of different things, including like hosts a podcast. Right. So like, but you could have gone a very different direction, a different direction in that and really like right. um, focused in on how horrible it was and how you couldn't do anything instead of focusing so much on it, it's going to make it like less severe. Yeah, for sure. So Bonnie, this has really been an interesting conversation about panic attacks and about health anxiety. And I think will be really helpful for people, especially with like an increase in the anxiety that a lot of people have been feeling recently. I just want to ask if you have any final thoughts on these topics that you'd like to leave us with. I guess that one other thing that's been like very tricky um, with health anxiety is the pandemic. And that, you know, I, I definitely have seen an um, increase of people with health anxiety with yeah. the pandemic and um, a lot of it's warranted, obviously, you know? Um, so I think that can be really tricky. And so what you really need to think about is sort of balancing like, okay, what is best practices? For example, like I know of someone who's still like cleaning their groceries and, you know, is vaccinated and boosted and still will like really barely ever leave the house. And, you know, so I think you need to think about like, okay, like that maybe seems a little far-fetched just to kind of, you know, I think to validate yourself that, yeah, this is a challenging time. This, you know, you have to, you know, people are, um, they vary in, in what's comfortable to them. But if you think that you're kind of going too far in the anxiety direction, or if it's like affecting your family members, 
then you might need to really um, think about getting some support or some help with that. Yeah, I have found the pandemic to be very challenging as a therapist to work with people because you know, actually there's a whole lot of subjectivity here about what is the right and wrong practices and no two people have the same opinion about this. So on the one hand, you have people who are extremely avoidant, extremely anxious and extremely cautious. And on the other end, you have people who think that people who are exercising any amount of caution or anxiety are crazy. And so trying to navigate that, obviously I have my own comfort zone and you have your comfort zone, but we're, uh, we're obviously working for our patient's benefit. And so that's been a big challenge for me, but I think you're right. Like the way that you put it, that, you know, maybe just having people examine and take a look at how their approach to things and their beliefs are working for them. Mm-hmm. whether it's on one end or the other end of the spectrum to try to put that in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's been, it's been challenging and it's, you know, I think also in like relationships where yeah. one person is extremely anxious and another person is extremely not. And, you know, I think that it just caused a lot of like relationship conflict and, and so forth. So it's, it can be really challenging. Yes. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on the show and being a guest on the podcast. It was really a pleasure having you talk about these very important topics. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.